Hello and welcome to Success Stories. I'm Kendra Hall, Chief Storytelling Officer at Success Magazine, and this is the podcast where we sit down with the brightest stars and the boldest thought leaders as they share their stories so you can create your own success story. Eliza Van Court is the author of the book, A Woman's Guide to Claiming Space, a female communication guide to standing tall, raising your voice, and being heard. She is a cookhouse fellow at Cornell, the creator of highly regarded workshops and keynotes, and a social activist who, through personal experience, learned it's dangerous to play small as a woman and now teaches others to claim space in order to change their lives. Eliza, welcome to Success. We are so excited to hear your stories. I am so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I, I, and you know what? I'm fascinated by this because I went, you know, I got my degree in communication studies. Like, I feel like I'm a pretty good communicator and reading through your book, hearing your message, I realized that I have a lot to learn still. So I'm, I'm really, you really <laughs> gave me a new way to think about, to think about the way I communicate. And I wanted to start there. Like, how did you, if I've learned anything, it's that whenever you meet someone like yourself, self, an, an author, an expert in their field, there were many stops, many stories along the journey that got you to where you are now. So so tell me some of those stories. How How did you find yourself in this place with this message? Well, it was a bit of a long journey. And the slightly shorter version is that when I was really young, I had a mother who was paranoid schizophrenic. Mm. And she got very ill when I was four. And she kidnapped me three times. And there was a national APB out on me. And in that time, one of the times we actually hitchhiked across the country by truck from New York to California. Oh, wow. And and as a mother now, I think about what happened on that trip, and I understand why I started to conflate invisibility with safety. Mm -hmm. And that was really the beginning. And then I kind of thought I had things pretty well under control. I was an acting teacher. I, I have an acting school, which I love. Things were going well. And then I was riding my bike, we're a big cycling family, and somebody decided it was a better idea to text and drive than just drive. <laughs> and they hit me with their car. Mm. And I had a bilateral brain injury and a subdural hematoma. And I lost a lot of my ability to communicate and I had to build it back brick by brick. And the process of doing that was difficult, but also incredibly enlightening and when I was done, I remember sitting back after my student came by and said, you're you again. And I thought, oh, wow, I've cracked the code of communication. And that was the beginning of a journey that eventually led me to speaking and then led me to writing this book. Wow. There, okay. There's a lot to discuss there. So first first and foremost, like my passion is stories and, and storytelling and how the stories shape our lives. And And I feel like your the stories you shared right there um what a what a beautiful way to to transform adversity into 
a gift for for people going forward. Did you know at the time of the bi- bicycle accident, I'm sure when you were four, you didn't know at the time mm-hmm. that that maybe you were onto something, that maybe this was the middle of a story and not like the end of it. Did you have any inkling of that? Not at first. At first, actually, I didn't have much of an inkling of anything. I, right. I would go to bed at night and I would wake up the next day and half my day from the day prior would be gone. And so I just didn't really know how bad things were. And in fact, I remember having a student coming over and saying to me, you know, she said, oh, Eliza, you know, you're really, you're, you're doing a lot better. And I thought, really? Because I didn't know I wasn't doing well, <laughs> which is like, you know, one of those moments in your life where you think I'm really in trouble. And in fact, for me, it was doubly scary because my mother had not been aware of how ill she was. So mm. to suddenly be in the situation myself where I thought everything was fine and the people around me thought she's not doing well was really, really scary. It was really yeah. scary. Um, but then there was a moment, actually, my one of my sisters, I have a lot of sisters in my life who, who are my angels. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wrote a Facebook post with my eyes closed because I couldn't actually look at the screen. And so it, it hurt. And so she called me and she and somebody edited it for me. And she called me and she said, that was really good writing. You should keep writing because then when you go to bed, you can think about what you learned and you won't forget it the next day. And so I started writing every night and I would send it to my sister, Katie Spallone, who lets me say her name. Um, I always get permission when I talk about people and tell their stories, which I think is important. But Katie would get my writing every single day and edit it and send it back to me. And then one of my students would come or sometimes my ex-husband would read it to me or my child, one of my older children. And they would read my writing to me every single day before I started my day. And it was that was when I started to realize I'm really learning a lot here. And that, right. that was the beginning of that. Okay. So I want to I, I want to talk about what you about that learning because I'm I want to make that connection between, you know, having to build everything back after the accident and then how that led forward to what you are, are sharing now. But before we go there, I want to go back to what you said about the, the multiple kidnappings, um, you know, the hitchhiking mm-hmm. across the country. And you said that looking back, you realized that connection between invisibility and safety. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can understand, and maybe there's some like specific s- instances you can share mm-hmm. from that, your four-year-old self. But this moment you said that, I felt something inside me as a woman mm-hmm. and thinking about my my female friends, thinking about my own daughter, and that connection between invisibility and safety. Yes. T- tell me huge. more about that. Yeah. I mean, that lies at the heart of my book, really, because we are taught as women to make ourselves small, to make other people comfortable. And so a lot of the time, especially when we go through puberty, suddenly our social capital moves from what we do to what we look like. And if boys like us, and it does, there's a radical shift there and you can see it, It, you can see it in young girls. And, you know, my, one of my dear friends is a social worker. And my, I remember my daughter walking in the room and being all, you know, she's pretending to be clumsy. This is a triathlete. She's pretending to be clumsy. And my friend said, you have to have a conversation with her. 
You have to explain to her exactly what's going on. It needs to be direct because she's in trouble and all girls at this age are in trouble. And so I, um, I can share the story if you want. I actually think every mother should yeah, hear it. Yeah, please. I'm, I'm like taking, I'm taking notes. So. I'm, I, no, I think this is so, this is so important. I like chills right now. Tell yeah. me about this. Yeah. yeah. So, so my friend Kim said, she explained to me the process that goes, the girls go through. And she said, you have to talk to Elle about it and you have to talk to her directly. So I did. Um, and I went to Ella and I explained to her, I said, you know, Ella, when you're a kid, when you're little, people come over to you and they are, you know, and they say, oh, you're good at kickball. I'm going to put you at number one on the kickball team. And you get a lot of reward for that. Or you're good at math. That's great. She's smart, you know. Mm -hmm. And then in puberty, suddenly everything shifts for girls. And it goes from you're good at that to that boy likes you. Oh, did you see how that boy looked at you? And suddenly your social capital does this huge seismic shift from you're good at that to how much are you making boys like you? And that includes how you look. That includes if you are making yourself small so that they feel big. That is all of these things that girls start to do. And so I talked to Ella about it. And she kind of blew me off, as daughters mm -hmm. will do. And then about yeah. three weeks later, she came home, and she I'll never forget it. And she said, Mom, you were right. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, I was walking down the hall, and there were two boys walking behind me, and they knew I could hear them. And one of them said, I like a girl because she's smart, and started laughing. And then the other boy said, I like a girl because she has a good personality, and started laughing. And, she, and I said, how did that make you feel? And she said, it was mean. Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, that's mean. And in that moment, she just decided she wasn't going to participate in that anymore. Yeah. That's, and that statement right there, um, the decision to participate or not, mm -hmm. I think is such an important important yes. one to equip them with so that they know that that is uh, a, a, a decision that yes. they can make or not make. Yes. You know, I, I think it's, it's so interesting because as you're talking and I think any women who are, who are listening to this, um, if you go back, I bet you can think about a moment in your, you know, in that puberty phase or even into high school where, where you saw this in action. As you were talking, I was taken right back to my seventh grade, you know, it would have been eighth grade, um, art class, which was, you know, kind of a joke. It was just a free for all. Um, but the boy I liked, the boy everybody liked, um, was in that class and he was so cool and he was so, and he was such a, he was so mean, but that was what made him cool. Mm -hmm. And I remember one of my girlfriends saying to me in that class, like in front of everyone. So I was mad mm -hmm. uh, because I was embarrassed. Mm -hmm. But she said, why do you talk like that in front of him? And I was like, talk like what? She said, you're smarter than that. Mm -hmm. You're acting like you don't know the answer to that. And I know you do. Mm -hmm. And she totally called me out. And so I was so offended by that. I was so upset because mm -hmm. I was so embarrassed. But now that I think about it, she was so right. Mm -hmm. And I... Mm -hmm. And without even realizing it, that's what right. I was doing. And that's our training. 
that's our training. And we're trained so in a million ways. I, I, I call it. Um, my friend Kim Munson Burke, who I was just telling you about, is so brilliant. She talks about your compass. And, and yeah. we all do have this compass. And the compass tells us what we're supposed to do. And at a very young age for girls, it just starts to get turned sideways. And we start, that's why you hear women so much more than men say, do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah. Right? You don't hear men say, do you know what I mean? Like, how many times have you heard a man say, am I crazy? Like, you just don't hear right. that. And so, you know, there's... <laughs> I think the ultimate way that it really, the, the first thing that happens, I think, and it's one of, there are two actually big primary things that we do as parents. The first thing is I, I call it telling our kids to kiss Uncle Bob, um, which is that moment where mm-hmm. you say, oh, go give Uncle Bob a kiss. Go give Uncle Bob a kiss. And the kid says, I don't want to. And all the, impar- the parents get embarrassed for Uncle Bob, not mm-hmm. because they told the kid to kiss someone who they didn't ask to kiss. And then right. they say, no, 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 go kiss Uncle Bob. And even though your gut is saying, I don't want to, you say, oh, when my gut tells me I don't want to kiss someone or be near someone or touch someone and, you know, and I say no, I can be shamed for that. That mm-hmm. can be actually something that is so wrong. I shouldn't trust that gut. That gut is wrong. And then mm. it gets even further and it escalates. And, you know, my favorite story is I had a little boy that I was deeply in love with. <laughs> I was yeah. like, such a crush on him. And yeah, yeah. we were hanging out when we were little and he said I was pretty. And then he hauled off and punched me in the shoulder. And I was like, oh, he's going down. So I was a really fast runner. So I ran to his house. I was like, I want to take him down. And I, you know, I run to the front door. I'm crying. I'm so mad. He's running after me, screaming. He's sorry. He's sorry. And his mom jumps out of the front porch. What's wrong? What's wrong? And I told her what happened. I said, oh, he hit, you know, he hit me. And she looks at him and she looks at me and she goes, oh, Eliza, he hit you because he likes you. Oh, right. And suddenly I'm like, wait. And then... You know, I see the look on his face. He's a little confused too, going like, what? And then we both sort of just absorb this idea. Oh, it's okay for a boy to hit me as long as he likes me. And then you think about carrying that message, you know, these messages with you. You know, it's not good to get hit, but if the boy likes you, then it's adorable. You know? Well, and, and for the boy too. And for the boy too. And the boy. Like, I'm thinking about his and Yeah, totally. Like, and he looked confused, too. And the mental gymnastics that we both did to absorb that message in that moment. And then you wonder, you know, why we have so much violence in our society if boys are being told, you know, and you see these movies where the man's angry and he punches a wall and everyone's like, oh, he's so in love. Whereas if a woman did that, you know, she, you know, he's like, I can't believe you don't love me anymore and hits a wall and you're like, there's so much love there, you know, whereas if a woman did that, they'd be like, she's bananas, you know? (laughs) So there are just all these messages we get that really... As as mothers, I think so much of our I mean, I never told my daughter, oh, go give so and so a kiss. Yeah, yeah. Not ever. And I see people still doing it and they're doing it because they want to make a connection with someone they care yeah. about who's an adult. They're not trying to mess up their kid at all. It's love. Yeah. But it it starts that process of eroding our compass and just turning it right on its head. So you had at the um my mind is just racing right now and I just want my kids to come home from school and they're having this. So my kids are right at the age where they're having the puberty talk at school. Mm-hmm. Well, my son and then, and then we're just talking about it in our house in general because they're only a year apart. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm pretty sure that this isn't a part of the curriculum and it should be it should because be. I know, 
I know that my son would be like, oh, yeah, that's not right. right. I should be aware of this. Like this is, you know, like it would there there would be empowerment there. There totally. would be allyship. Totally. There would be. So there's a lot to think. I might have to. I might have to. I might have to go to the school and talk to them about that. Yeah. But I, I do want to. So how does this? So whereas as women, whether we're in the now we're adult women, mm-hmm. right? Where where how does this connection between invisibility and safety mm-hmm. show up in the way that we communicate in any situation, but even professional mm-hmm. situations? Mm-hmm. How how does how does that express? If someone were listening to this and thinking, I don't feel like I need to be invisible to be safe. I'm far more advanced beyond that. Uh, what might surprise them? Mm-hmm. Well, how many times have you accommodated somebody you didn't want to? How many times, you know, have you gone in a room and someone says something just a little off? And, you know, if this were your girlfriend, you'd say, wait, what? But, you know, because it's a man... You, you make them comfortable or a great example actually is when there's a joke made at your expense and you laugh, you laugh to make them comfortable about the joke that they made that was not really a mic. It was really a microaggression. I mean, the, the mm-hmm. best example I have is I had a client. I've actually had two clients, a very similar thing happen um, where she was the only woman in the room and she'd made a lot of money on a huge deal for her company. And her boss got up in front of everyone, just praise her and say how wonderfully she did. And then he said, you know, we hope you don't go spend it all on a purse in front of all these people. And, you know, she said, in the past, Eliza, I would have laughed to make everyone else comfortable and to show that it didn't bother me. But it bothered me. He would never have said that to a man. So she used, you know, some of the techniques I outlined in the book. And in this case, she used a question. She just said, what do you mean? I know, like, what? and that's it. And I then know. just dropped it. And questions are great because they make people self-reflect, but they can't say you're being hysterical and reactive. So she just said, what do you mean? Yeah. Um, but then, I, you know, that kind of thing, that's making yourself small every time you diminish your truth. And we do it all day long. Well, and, and even as you're, as you were telling the story and I'm like picturing myself in the boardroom and having that happen it in that moment in that split second where you decide how to respond, um, it can be scary. It, the easy route is to laugh and let it go and deal with how that felt somewhere else in private. Right. Um, and, you know, maybe that's like that that is the thing that feels safe. And then, of course, what's at stake is that people do think you're hysterical or that you're angry or that. So you mentioned ask a questions. Is this a good time to go? What are some of the and I know that you have four revolutionary tools for communication. Um, but what are some of the things that we can actually do? Mm-hmm. Maybe, and I know one of my uh Verbal crutches is the word actually in there. I just said it. <laughs> Please tell me that awareness is the first step. <laughs> well, you know, the truth is that we all have our verbal tics. 
And yeah. you, it's all right. I mean, no one's going to speak proper English, the Queen's English all the time. You know, it's not going to happen. <laughs> but but I think that being aware of it is is the first step. It really is because you will reduce it. The, the more you're, I mean, I'm a child of the 80s. So like, you know, like, I just like want to say oh like, gosh, like, I oh my God, like all the time. saying right. Like. Me too. Like, oh my God, like me too. <laughs> like, <laughs> and now I'm, I'm passing it down, like this terrible habit down to my, I hate I it. I know. And I do so, it too. I say like, 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 and I have, you know, so. I really work on not doing that. But yeah, there are tools that you can do. Um, the One of them is asking a question. Qu- asking a question yeah. is fantastic because, you know, there are words that are used to silence women. And if, and if you want to avoid those words, then, you know, and personally, I have a whole chapter on how to handle those words and maybe not avoiding those words. But yeah. if you want to not deal with it in the moment, asking a question mm-hmm. is a really good way to do it. And she actually did ask a question in the purse example. And he, and he started trying to explain it. He's like, well, you know, I just, you know, it's, uh, it's, you know, uh, you know, like you get a purse and she's like, oh, are you saying I take the money I made for the company and buy a purse? Smiley face question. And he was just like, and he actually stopped. And in this particular, in one of the cases, he said, I guess that wasn't that funny, was it? And she just went. And all the other guys yeah. started giving him a hard time. So, you know, right. so because she didn't, she handled it in such a way that he had to self-reflect. So questions yeah. are a great way of of shutting down a microaggression. The other thing is I think women need to get a little more comfortable with silence. We're taught yep. to fear silence. Uh, that's mm-hmm. a big fear in public speaking. Oh, my God, what if I stop talking? And the truth is that silence is a power move. It's a huge power move. And so if we can start as women to use silence more, that will actually help us in our power. So, you know, if I were to say to you, you know, there's something I want to tell you and it might take a couple minutes, right? That's really different than there's something I want to tell you and it might take a couple minutes, right? That power move, that pause. Yeah, my heart right, sank your heart's like, right there. I was oh. like, what do you want to tell me? <laughs> no, don't tell me. And you don't even know what it is, right? But that's right. that pausing. And that's because as women, we're statistically interrupted more. So we tend to not pause because we're using what I call defensive defensive speech patterns, which is like we're peppering our speech with like, ah, or um, but, you know, to kind of fill the space so that we're not interrupted. And so part of what we want to learn how to do is really embrace silence. And the way you do that is just to make sure you're using, when I did that, I leaned in a little, I made direct eye contact, you know, that kind of thing. That tells the person I'm pausing and you will wait for me. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually something that that's something that when I am talking about story, and I don't talk often about presentation mm-hmm. and storytelling, but to like lean into that mm-hmm. pause, like you, like there is there's a lot of power there. Huge. Um, and as I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking again about my daughter uh, because I do. I don't feel like it's lost for me, and like I feel like there. How many times did I say like right there? Just just wanted to point that I out. I am so with you. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad. I will tell you, I was nervous about our conversation because I was thinking, I can't stop saying like, <laughs> and she's going to be judging me. No, um, never. But I am. I'm your sister in like. It's a thing of the 80s. I love that you, yeah. uh, oh, that you oh. said that. Totally. But, but I... I do have hope for me and that these are things that I can learn to get better at with practice, with awareness, as you said, reading your book. Um, But what I really care about 
as I'm thinking about this, and I didn't realize that it would come out this way, is, as we've talked earlier, equipping my children and equipping my daughter. And as you're talking about this fear of the pause... Um, or, or really that the communication tool of silence. Mm-hmm. I think about my daughter and how I get irritated with her because when she's trying to say something, when she's trying to tell us something, she'll kind of start at the beginning, but then like she'll, she starts without really knowing what she's going to say. Mm-hmm. And it goes, it's just, it's just mess. It's noise. It's doesn't, and I want to say to her, just don't. Talk if you don't know what you're going to say. But now I realize mm-hmm. in a household of talkers, yep. and she has an older brother, and she has me. My husband doesn't talk a whole lot, but mm-hmm. every once in a while, she has already internalized yep. that. That is why it takes her 30 seconds to even get into the thing she wants to say. I taught her that. I, I've created an environment where she does that, and I feel so terrible about it. That's interesting. Yeah. Oh, the things I think about with... I mean, I have four adult, almost adult kids. I have a 17-year-old my youngest, and they just go out from right. there. And let me tell you, if I think about the things I did as a parent, and I'm just like, oh, why can't I have a mulligan? I know. <laughs> I just need a little do-over, just one. It's a little do-over. <laughs> you know, but so, we do our best, you know. But what a great – and then to have these conversations with them so that they can then carry these conversations forward with their children should they choose to have them. That's right, yeah. So, you mentioned silence. Um, what's another one of the revolutionary tools for communication? Well, being quiet actually is one of them, which seems very counterintuitive. Uh, because you want to start with a volume that's a little louder than you would normally have. So, for example, I'm speaking a little more loudly than I would if we were girlfriends having wine over Zoom, let's say. Because, okay, you know, yeah. I wouldn't be like, hey, you know, Kendra, how you doing? And, you know, I'd be like, hey, so this happened and that happened, blah, blah, blah. But because we're doing a podcast, we're doing a little more projection because that shows that yeah. we're engaged, we have authority. And when you get excited, you project. So if you started a nice base like that, Then you can drop down your volume to do something called lifting, which is just a way of making a point. So Mm. for example, I can say to you, yesterday I went to the store and I got milk and I got eggs. Yes. (laughs) And it doesn't, you know, it sounds incredibly important. It is not. Yes. Right? (laughs) It's not important at all. And the reason why it sounds so important is because as human beings, we actually build intimacy by telling secrets. So when you, the, someone who does this better than almost anyone is Obama, he'll be giving a speech and then he gets really quiet and you can see the audience, they all move in and the camera pans to them and you can see this look on their face like Obama is talking directly to me. And I'm thinking, no, he's just extra quiet. (laughs) You're one of millions of people, but it makes you feel this intimate connection. That's why if you're in a huge room and no one's around, you're not going to say to your friend, oh my God, I have a secret to tell you. You're going to say, oh, I have a secret. You don't have to whisper. No one's there. But what you're doing is signaling you're sharing something special with them. And so the key is you want to bump up after. So you don't want to get stuck down there because then it just becomes quiet and then that's not cool. So you wouldn't say, you know, I got milk and eggs and then I walked home. And then, you know, you'd say, and I. And then you're just going to put people to sleep. And then you're going to put people to sleep. So you'd say, and I got milk and I got eggs. And you're not going to believe what I saw after that, right? So you bump right back up again, but it allows you to lift this moment. And what lifting does is it lets you tell the person, this is the key thing in this sentence that I want you to focus on. 
milk and eggs. <laughs> That's the thing. Yeah, which if you're lactose intolerant, it takes on a whole, <laughs> a whole new other meaning. <laughs> that new could be the story. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So tell me, like, I just said it again. Are these things that we can practice? Oh yeah. Do you do you recommend? So how, how what does what does that look like? How do you do you get together with friends and say, "All right, I am going to practice talking to you," and then being a little bit quieter so that I can lift what's important. Right. Do you, how do you, that was actually you beautifully done. This? I have to tell you, that was fantastic. That was really good. I'm going to pat myself on the back for that one. <laughs> you really, <laughs> a quick study. Yeah, you really are. I, it takes a while to train people to do that. Um, well, what I recommend is think, thinking of life's communication like a performance. And I don't mean that like you're being performative. But mm-hmm. when you are doing getting ready for a play, and that's my background, you know, you work and you work and you work and you get everything ready. And then you do as best you can, you know, you're ready on opening night. And then on opening night, you give yourself a break when you lose at least 5% of your lines, you know, and you, yeah. you don't, you don't watch yourself, you just keep going. Because if every time you make a mistake, then you start indicating to people you feel bad. And that's much worse than saying like 800,000 times. Right? right. So you just all the time, what I do is when I'm not in podcasts, I try to avoid saying like, even though I say it all the time. And then when I'm in a podcast, I know I'm going to say like, but because I've practiced not saying it, I'm going to reduce it in the show, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That makes sense. Um, and I, I love it. This is a side note. I love that. I love your and I think it's for important for people to hear this and pick up on this is you've taken all these various experiences and um, areas of passion and really brought it to something so valuable to give back to the world. So I'm sure, you know, you were in theater mm-hmm. as I'm a theater kid. Too. I'm a theater kid too. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm, I'm with you on that. Yes. But, but essentially, like taking that, taking your personal experiences, taking to because yeah, these these techniques in some ways, as you as you said, they are they're they are very technical, and that's really they're not these. It's not vague. You know, you should just feel <laughs> your power, right? The, these are very specific strategies that you know. Silence. You learn that in theater. Uh, volume you've learned that in theater what a cool what a cool way to have brought everything you've done and you've experienced together and solidified it here in this book i know your keynotes your workshops i think that's really cool um okay so i if you if there were to be one other strategy and then i want to ask you about um the role men can play mm-hmm. in in helping women to claim more space mm-hmm. or allowing for that to happen. If there's one more strategy that people, if they could just listen to this and have this in their mind, what would that be? Um, I think the last one, which is pretty basic, but it's harder for us, is slowing down. If we're talking mm-hmm. about the physicality and voice, my, my book yeah. actually has five aspects of claiming space. But this is all the stuff from part one, which is just simply how do you claim space with your physicality and your voice? And Mm -hmm. women, what they have found is that in order for women to be heard and believed, 
we need to actually offer more evidence. But the problem is we don't get more airtime in conversations. So we all have the same socially acceptable amount of time to talk. And if you've ever been at a party with that one person who goes over, you know, everyone's like, wait a minute, man, you've gone past your limit. <laughs> you know, yes. it's too much. And so, yes. but the problem is if you have to offer more evidence in a professional setting or in life, but you get the same amount of time, what do you do? You speed up so you can mm -hmm. fit everything in there. And so what happens is you speak very quickly, but the problem is speaking very quickly is a very disempowered speech pattern. You don't want to do that. So what I always recommend that women do is really work on moments that you're going to slow down and you just mm -hmm. need to find it's lifting again. You just need to find a couple places where you slow down, not all the time because that is boring, but just yeah. a couple places and that will help you immensely, immensely. And it will feel like right now, many women, if they were to hear me talk how slowly I'm speaking now, it would feel like molasses to them, but it doesn't actually feel that slow. So you just yeah. want to find those little moments that you can slow down. And then also, if you're in a meeting, don't try to give your evidence within that chunk because you'll never fit it in and you'll sound really rapid and frantic. So, you know, at the beginning of this podcast, I was having trouble with my technical stuff. What was I doing? I was going really fast and I was running around. And I was yeah. right because and you said you're really frazzled you know, something, which is exactly right. Right. So if I had wanted to hide that, which at that point I didn't care because I just wanted my equipment to work. <laughs> but if I wanted to and you were being real cool, but if I'd wanted to hide that, you know, then I would have said, if you could excuse me for a minute, I'm going to go look for this thing. You know, I'm mm -hmm. going to find this thing. So mm -hmm. that is, you know, so if you're in a situation that you are trying to really look professional, you can say, you know, instead of, I believe we should adopt this pen and here's why there's been research on black pens and blah, 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 blah. Instead, you would say, I believe we should adopt this pen and I have research if you'd like to hear it. Then mm -hmm. they say, yes, they bounce it back. You bought yourself another chunk of time. Right. Oh, that's so interesting how you can buy yourself more time by slowing down. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I, I notice that even in my keynotes, I get really excited. I get carried away. I get going, I get going, I get going. And I actually run out of breath, really. Yeah. And that is my indication that I, and I get an hour, you know, like mm -hmm. that is my a lot. It's not the natural. And I, that's when I know <laughs> I need to. Slow it down. Right. And that's always the best part. As soon as I slow down, much like getting quieter, yeah. everyone leans in. Yes. And, and they it's the interruption in in the sound patterns mm -hmm. that catches their attention. Yeah. I mean if you look okay. at Oprah, you know, sorry, if you, if you look I at know. Oprah, if you look at her in the beginning of her career and now, the amount of pausing and slowing down that she does now compared to early on is incredible. Go look at the footage. Interesting. It's fascinating because as she's gotten more powerful, she has exactly. not worried about people interrupting her. She can take the time she needs. So her vocal patterns are now reflecting that. So that's the question, which comes first. Like you can put your slower cadence, the chicken before the egg or the cart before. If you start slowing down now, maybe that creates a virtuous cycle. Well, yeah. Think about if you meet someone and they exude power, you think they're yeah. powerful, right? If someone yep. exudes a feeling of being small and, and defensive, that's how you see them. So you can, yeah. I, if that's, I mean, I see it all the time. My clients who really step into their power, 
they get promoted more. And they're not really, sometimes they're actually not doing more than the person who's not getting promoted. They're simply communicating in a more powerful way. Oh, all right. I, so I gave you a teaser on this one. What role can men play Mm -hmm. in helping women? Helping doesn't seem like the right word, but in their efforts to claim more space. Mm -hmm. Well, I do actually think I've heard from many men who've read my book that it's been incredibly enlightening to them. Yeah, um, yeah. So one man said he thinks it should be required reading, required reading for all men in college, which I thought was really interesting. Um, I love that. Yeah. So, but I think that one of the things there are two things, and and actually it's a it's an analogy that I use with race as well, and mm-hmm. that is just the first step is believing women. And it's so simple. But when a woman says, you know, I didn't like that, you don't need to say, oh, but I didn't mean it. Or that's not what I meant to say. Or you're being sensitive. All you have to say is, oh, okay. So what can I do differently? Mm -hmm. It's so Mm -hmm. simple. But if someone says, you know, the way you looked at me just now, it made me uncomfortable. Well, that's in your head. You know, no, you just say, oh, okay. Thanks for telling Mm -hmm. me. What can I do? I'll I'll be careful next time. Very simple. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is they've actually done research that, the power group, the group in power doesn't listen to the less powerful group. So for example, if you have a black person and a white person at a table and the, and the white person microaggresses the black person and the black person says, that's not cool, the white person might not believe them. But if another white person steps in and says, that's not cool, they will believe them every time. And that's unfortunate, but it's true. And it is the same with women and men. So if, wow. if you see, a, if there's a man and a woman at a table Like I was in a situation where I was getting mansplained constantly in this one consulting gig I did. I was the only woman, constant mansplaining. And finally, Mm -hmm. I took one of the, some people call them allies. I call them co-conspirators. But, you know. Yeah, I like it. (laughs) Yeah, it's just a little, you know. But I took one of my co-conspirators aside and I said, you know, every time that you repeat what I say and say, well, what Eliza meant to say is this, because you're trying to get everyone to hear my idea because they're not listening to me. It's actually just showing that, you know, your voice is important and mine isn't. And he said, oh my God, I was just trying to help because nobody was listening to you. So I kept repeating it. And I said, yeah, instead, why not say, you know, I really liked what Eliza had to say. And I back her up completely on what she said. And if someone says, well, what do you mean? What does she say? You can say, well, I understood it perfectly, but Eliza, if you want to repeat it for them, those who didn't, that's fine. So stepping in when you see someone interrupting, when you see someone mansplaining, all of those things, men who are really committed to empowering their the women in their lives, and a lot of men really are, you uh, yeah, know, yep, are yep. they their job really is to learn the things that are difficult for women that you might not see, and how can you possibly see them if you don't experience them? You just yep. you know, so learn and listen, and then jump in and interrupt moments when women are being being made to feel small. I think that this is, I can see why the men who have read your book have said that it should be required reading because that right there, you know, I think about the, the men, the co-conspirators mm-hmm. in my life who, who I know are doing their best, like they are, they are really, and, and, and sometimes they just make it worse. And, and it's with the, you know, like I know that isn't the intent, but that right there, that very specific, shift. Mm-hmm. That one strategy mm-hmm. could change meetings and boardrooms forever. Totally. That is, and then, and I mean, 
what a beautiful and then as you said in ter- the research was the research done on race as well power and privilege that they find the yep. privileged group listens to the privileged group so even believe it or not i mean there's pretty privilege pretty people right. d- get a lot of privilege pretty people yep. listen to pretty people more they actually disregard less pretty people. It's pretty right. incredible. So, you know, a lot of our job out there is to kind of identify what privileges we have and what we don't and make sure mm-hmm. that when we are in the privileged position, we are making sure that we're looking out for people who aren't. Ugh, I feel like that sentence could change the world right there. Yeah. Um Eliza, this is, well, congratulations. Um, a Woman's Guide to Claiming Space is out and available now. Anywhere books are sold. If we want more from you, where do we find you, Eliza? You can go to my website, which is elizavancourt.com. Uh, know you in Vancourt. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and I'm actually developing a page where women can share their experiences. It's not up yet. So if you sign up for my list, that's probably going to be up in a couple of months and I'm so excited about it. Uh, you can also connect with me on LinkedIn and you can connect with me on my personal page on Facebook, but that's going to stop soon. But I've just had a lot yeah. of women who've been sharing their stories with me and it's been so unbelievably moving. And I found that a lot of them couldn't find me. They just weren't on LinkedIn. So I decided, you know, if you want to share your story with me on your personal page, I might not get back to you right away, but I promise to get back to you. Uh, that's why I did this. I did this to help people. And so yeah. the more I can connect with people, the happier I am. Uh, well, and if you listened to this episode and loved it, you can please share your comments here um, and let Eliza know. Eliza, this has been... Uh, just amazing. Thank you so much for, for taking the time. Thank you for your work and your what you shared with us here today. I can't wait to see what happens next in your story. Mm. Well, thank you. You are one of the most empathetic, kind people I have met. I really appreciate how nice you were at the beginning when I could get my equipment. You, t- you walk the walk and you talk the talk. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this conversation, look up an inch or down an inch and check out all of our previous discussions. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are sold. And of course, check out the latest issue of Success Magazine by heading over to success.com slash subscribe and get more inspiring stories like this delivered right to your front door. Be sure to give us a review on Apple iTunes and you can find me at kindrahall.com or on Instagram at kindrahall. That is Kindra with an I. I can't wait to hear the stories you'll tell. Until next time. <laughs>